When I was 12, I was living in Maryland, and Hurricane Agnes came up the East Coast. And it kind of stalled out over Maryland and Pennsylvania like Hugo did over, or uh, Harvey did over uh, Houston. And I had never been in a hurricane, let alone any weather event that killed like 120, 130 people. And I'll tell you what it was like. Like picture a storm where it's raining like about as hard as it can rain and then just leave it on that setting for like two and a half days. So where we lived, it rained like 10 to 15 inches uh, of rain. And so when the rain finally cleared enough that we could get out of the house, walked down to the highway bridge going over the Potomac River where we lived. And instead of its usual width, it was like double, triple the width because it had so far overflowed the, blank, the banks. And the water was super muddy and swollen. There were like entire oak trees drifting by. It was insane. And I'll never forget, I looked, and there coming down the river is a big, white, two-story frame farmhouse. Like it had just been swept off the foundations and was now like bobbing down the Potomac River like a bath toy. We actually saw several of those. And so I think I can feel maybe just a little bit of the emotion that God's people must have felt the day that Joshua leads them up to the banks of the Jordan River. And they're looking and they're like, and we're supposed to cross that. Because like uh, the Potomac was that day for me, the Jordan River is at flood stage, the Bible tells us. And so it's no longer like, say, 90 feet across, it's 150 or 200 or more. And the water is already muddy, now it's really muddy, it's super turbulent. And, oh, by the way, you have two million people with you who need to get across. So grandma needs to get across, grandpa needs to get across, the babies need to get across, the toddlers. And, uh, and it's, it's utterly impossible. You're here because God's been leading you, right? God said, I'm gonna give you the land on the other side of the Jordan. My vision for you is that you're finally gonna live in a land of your own at peace, not be enslaved by oppressive powers, and finally free to worship me, your God. And so, so there's so much hope in that word, but they know they're supposed to be there, but like, how do you get there? I don't know if in your own life, as you've been following God, you have followed him to the best of your knowledge and ability, and then you hit the river. And you know, well, God, I know you're calling me forward. I know there's something better over there, and I know that I'm supposed to get there, but I don't know how to get there. I know I can't get there on my own. Or since this is happening right now to an entire group of God's people who are confronting the Jordan River, Maybe we should ask, have we ever been a part of a group of God's people, a Bible study, a church, or something like that, where you had that moment where you're like, it seems impossible. I don't, I don't really see this happening. I know Karen and I, years ago, we walked into the first Sunday of a church plant, and there it was in a living room, and there was one family of six, there was our family of four, and then there were four or five people in their 70s, and that was our church. And I, I'm sitting there, everybody else is like super excited, and I'm thinking, I don't know, you know? <laughs> I, I don't know, will this become self-sustainable and, and fully functioning? Well, it did. Um, <laughs> but it sure felt crazy. Or the time 
we're in a church of 50, and the church really felt led. We want to raise all the funds necessary to build a, an orphanage in Rwanda for the victims of the genocide whose parents have been killed. And we were a church of 50. We were like having trouble just like getting our own bills paid. This seemed crazy talk. It seemed like a river between us and this sense that we had of where God was calling us to go. So when God is leading and you can't stay where you are, but now you've hit the river, what next? Well, let's, let's look at how God leads Joshua and the Israelites here. If you turn back to your first reading, it says there in Joshua 1 and, and or excuse me, Joshua 3 and uh, verse 1, early the next morning, Joshua and all the Israelites left Acacia Grove and they arrived at the banks of the Jordan River where they camped before crossing. And three days later, the Israelite officers went through the camp giving these instructions. When you see the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, move out from your positions and follow them. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is considered the throne of God or, or the footstool of God sometimes, but it's the place where God comes in power and his presence is made manifest. And usually it's hidden away inside the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle. But now it's on the move. God's on the move. And if it's been a little while since you've watched an Indiana Jones movie, um, the ark is roughly the size of like, say, a hope chest. Or maybe we might say like a coffee table, like a little bit, a little bit wider than two feet and almost as long as four feet, okay? So that'll give you a sense of the dimensions. And it's built from wood. And it's though been completely, every inch of it, overlaid with gold. And inside it, if you were able to lift the lid, you would find the two stone pieces of stone in which God inscribed the Ten Commandments. And you would find a jar of manna, that miracle food, the bread from heaven that kept them alive through all those years in the desert. And so it kind of reminds me of word and sacrament. But anyway, I'm Anglican. So as you can imagine, <laughs> all that gold makes the Ark of the Covenant super heavy. So I went down the internet rabbit hole this week trying to get estimates, and I saw estimates ranging anywhere from like 180 pounds to 600 pounds. So to carry this thing is really a lot. So they have, at God's instructions, built these two long wooden poles, one on each side, that like go, they, each one slides through two rings, right? So it's attached to the ark. And it takes four strong people one on each end of each pole to lift this thing, put it up on their shoulders. They most likely had some kind of padding between their shoulder and the pole. And then they probably had to switch out priests like pretty frequently <laughs> as, as they're on the move. But the idea is when the ark's on the move, God's on the move. And when the God's on the move, you don't sit in camp and take a nap. When God's on the move, you move out and you follow him. Verse 4, since you've never traveled this way before, the priests carrying the ark will guide you. Stay about a half a mile behind them, keeping a clear distance between you and the ark. Make sure you don't come any closer. 
Now, like if a fire engine races by us someday when we're out driving and the sirens are screaming and the lights are flashing, we know you got to stay at least 500 feet behind that emergency vehicle, right? Well, God is so holy, is the idea here, that you need to stay back six times that far. Like, yes, you can see God's leading. Yes, we follow God's leading, but we are never glib about the presence, the power, and the leading of God. We don't rush up. We don't go, can I get a selfie with you, the ark? No. Which explains this, verse 5. Then Joshua told the people, purify yourselves. Purify yourselves. For tomorrow the Lord will do great wonders among you. Now it's interesting to me that whenever God does a great work, he lets his people know in advance so they can get ready to participate in that great work. Amos, uh, one of the great prophets, says this. He says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. And then what happens is the prophets tell God's people, like Joshua's doing here, God's got great wonders. God's at work. Are you going to be ready to participate and share in that? And God's people don't have a real good history listening to prophets, but God gives them the opportunity. You can be ready when, I, when I'm on the move. And so we, we purify ourselves. Now, we don't purify ourselves to convince God we're finally good enough so you can do what you were going to do. God's going to do what God's going to do. But the purification allows us to participate and join in. We're going to be ready when it moves. We see it, we follow it. Now, in their day, purify meant several different rituals, probably uh, definitely involving wash your clothes, which is a good symbol even to us today of getting your kind of life cleaned up. But I wonder if in our culture today, maybe the application is more like open ourselves to God as much as we can or put down our phones, which are roughly the size and shape of a Canaanite deity, and <laughs> avoid distractions and, and confess anything in our life that needs some cleaning. Just like your clothes get dirty, your inner life gets dirty. And so at that, this is the time where we deal with that so we can make ourselves ready and receptive to the great wonders God wants to do. So the people do that, and here's what happens. Verse 15, it was the harvest season, and the Jordan was overflowing its banks. But as soon as the feet of the priests who were carrying the ark touched the water at the river's edge, the water above that point, like all the way going north, began backing up at a great distance away at a town called Adam. Now, this is pretty astonishing, so let's slow down. Imagine the sun is gleaming off the two golden cherubim made out of hammered gold with their wings outspread across the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And you can hear the grunts of four people trying to carry this Ark on their shoulders. And you watch, like you can't take your eyes away from this, as they actually have the chutzpah to step into these swollen, flooding waters. And you're wondering, are they going to get swept away? 
Is our Ark of the Covenant, which is the very sign and place of God's presence among us, going to get swept away? But God is not afraid of the flood. It turns out the flood is afraid of God. As soon as the people carrying the Ark stop, step in, all the way 18 miles upstream, the water stops moving. God is so holy that the waters actually run from him. They flee from him. This is what Psalm 114 tells us. What happened, Jordan River, that you turned away? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. This is one of the greatest wonders God ever does, right here. When the Hoover Dam was built back during the Great Depression, it took five years to build. The thing, if you visited it, you know it's like over 700 feet high. I was startled, I guess this was pre-OSHA, 96 workers died in the building of the Hoover Dam. But on this day, God miraculously, in effect, builds a Hoover Dam instantly and nobody gets hurt. And so then the water that was already there, below that point, rushes on to the Dead Sea until the riverbed is dry, and then it says all the people crossed over near the town of Jericho. The priests who were carrying the Ark of the Lord's Covenant stood on dry ground in the middle of the riverbed as the people passed by. You wonder whether there was like little pools left, maybe some mud, maybe a dying fish or two, until the whole nation of Israel had crossed the Jordan on dry ground. Can, can we just stand in awe of the power of God when it is released? As Dallas Willard said, what we can accomplish, as good as that may be, does not compare to what God can accomplish. Watchman Nee dialed that up. He said, to have God do his own work through us, even once, is better than a lifetime of human striving. What we cannot do, God can do. And what's amazing is when he does great wonders, he involves us. We don't part the waters. God parts the waters, but we purify ourselves. We don't lead. God leads out, but we follow. Everybody's a part of this thing. So I've been wrestling this week, like, how do, this is a communal application. Last week was a kind of an individual application. This is communal. God is working with the people here. And on this day, the commands or invitations that are spoken to them are spoken to them together. Purify yourselves and follow. Those are the two, purify yourselves and follow. So these are actually lessons for us to take to heart for any group of God's people trying to discern and follow the leading of the Lord. One is that the Lord is the one who parts the waters. We purify ourselves. So we don't have to rush down to the Jordan and try to push the water apart, you know, do any of that kind of machinery. God's going to do that. We purify ourselves so we can see what God's doing, and we join him in doing that. Now, a lot of times in our uh, white evangelical movement in America, people started with the whiteboard and a lot of vision, right? They didn't start with God's vision, <laughs> God, they didn't, want, they didn't take the time to discern what's, where's God leading. How do we get behind that? How do we join that? Man, we'd have so many fewer messes if we would do that. I wasn't planning on saying that. Okay. Um, 
And lesson number two, the Lord leads, we follow. He goes first, and we, we get behind him. So now I have to say, looking back in the history of Savior, we have seen God part the waters before. Even at our founding uh, with uh, Mother Linda and Father Bill, I know, Bill, you've dubbed yourself the most reluctant church planner in the history of Christianity. <laughs> that must have felt like a big river. <laughs> but you know what? What we can't do, God can do. And he involves us all. Uh, in the early years of the church, one of our members, Shelly Allen, uh, was, uh, came down with ALS, which, as you know, is a terrifying disease, and she had no real family to care for her. And so there was this moment of standing at what seemed an impassable river. Could one small church provide Shelley with what amounted to pretty much around-the-clock care when she was in great extremity, both physically and emotionally? The people here then tell me it seemed impossible in many ways, but what we can't do, God can do, and then he involves us. Now, last year, I got to say, when the pandemic first hit, I was like, big swollen muddy river, you know, we don't have like a high-tech TV studio kind of thing, right? That, it's not been our jam. How are we going to preach the gospel? How are we going to get the sacraments to people? That was the first thing I was like, that's what a church does. We preach the gospel and we, we gather around the sacraments. How do you do that when you can't even see each other or be together? And then when we're all done with however long this was, and remember when it seemed like it was going to be a long weekend? You know? <laughs> Will there be a community left? You know? But what, here we are. What we can't do, God can do. And he involves all of us. Now, now I've sort of been wondering this week as I've been wrestling with this text, what's, what, is, what water is God going to part next? Where's God on the move? And I don't know, uh, but I want to share with you a spiritual intuition I have, I've had, and actually put this before the community for greater and fuller discernment, okay? So when Karen and I were on prayer retreat, I had a, a sense of God saying to me, I have set before you an open door. And I just put that in my journal and thought about that. I didn't know that whether that was really for me, Kevin, or for me, Kevin, for Savior. Now, I actually looked up that verse, which some of you Bible scholars will know, is in Revelation uh, 3, I think it is, to one of the seven churches. And it's, it was actually a word to a church. So I'm actually tipped toward thinking that's a, a word for us. But I don't know. Um, and then this week, a woman who lives out of state and has only visited Savior once said this to Karen. Savior is going to receive new believers to disciple. And when she told me that, I did laugh a little bit. I was like, does she know that like, since January last year, we've had like 26 new <laughs> children and youth who've come? But maybe she means adults. I don't know. And then she also said this. Savior is a protected place. said, I, I saw not one big angel, but lots of angels surrounding the whole inside of the sanctuary. A sanctuary she's only been in once. Now, uh, prophetic words like this, as Paul said, have to be discerned by a church. 
So, 1 Thessalonians 5, don't scoff at prophecies. But what we are to do, not scoff, we are to test them. Paul immediately says, so test them. Test them all and hold on to the ones that are good. Okay, so I'm actually inviting you, I'd like to know what your internal tester is saying about these kind of things that I just shared. Uh, I know many of you have the gift of discernment. Others have gifts of faith. Others have gifts of wisdom. Others have uh, uh, gifts of intercession. And so this is your jam. This is what you do. So I would love to hear from you. Um, talk to me afterwards. Email me. What I'm sensing is I think God's on the move. I think Aslan's on the move, and I don't know what that means yet. And I'm curious, but I'm hopeful and I'm expectant. That's where I am right now. Okay. Well, whatever the case may be, and, and we'll discern it together, and then ultimately our staff, vestry, and clergy lead us, um, I'm trying to figure that out. And so I'm praying, Lord, help us see what you're doing, where you're moving. What is next for us? We do have a prayer gathering coming up on October 6th. That's a great time for all of us to meet, listen in prayer. But um, let me just uh, close with that. So I've invited you. You know the application. Now let me just in, lead you in a prayer that I've been praying. Uh, Father, you are the great God, all holy, and you make the water to stand in a heap. If you are getting ready to move, to do wonders we could not imagine, would you make that clear? And give us the grace to purify ourselves and to be ready and to move. In Jesus' name, amen.